ask that you turn in your Bibles with me to the epistle of Jude. Jude. We have been going through this book, this chapter. It has only one chapter these several weeks. And if you ask me what is my, or what are my favorite verses, I'm ready to tell you. Verses 24 and 25, the grand finale of this great epistle of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. After thoroughly exposing the apostate teachers of his day and instructing the saints as to how to protect themselves against these Christ-denying, ungodly leaders, Jude ends his epistle on a high note of praise to God. And here in these closing lines of his epistle, verses 24 and 25, we find one of those instances in the New Testament in which theology issues in doxology. As you know, a doxology derived from the Greek word doxa, the word for glory, is an expression of worship and praise to God. Jude 24 and 25 is one of several doxologies in the New Testament. Others can be found in such passages as Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Philippians chapter 4, verse 20, 1 Timothy 1, verse 17, Hebrews 13, 20 and 21, and of course, Revelation chapter 5, verse 13, to name a few. And as summary statements on the character and power of God, doxologies would say provide us with substantive aids for the proper worship of Almighty God. We know from the Word of God that God is not properly worshipped unless we worship Him in accordance with the truth that He has set forth in His Word concerning who He is and what he has done. In this regard, we would say, the doxologies of Scripture point us in the direction of true worship. They provide us with lyrics for our music. They provide us with subject matter for reflection on the person and power of God. And by way of this doxology, Jude summons us as believers in Christ to praise God for at least three things. We want to look at each of these in turn. Jude summons us in this doxology to praise God for at least three things. First, in this doxology, Jude summons believers in Christ to praise God for his power. To praise God for his power. And although Jude 
does not directly address God here in verse 24, he does not leave us in doubt as to the God, the particular God he is referring to, because in verse 25, he references this God as the only God, our Savior. As far as Jude is concerned, there is but one God, and hence Jude could comfortably say to him without even referencing his name. Now in verse 24, God's power is expressed by the clause, him who is able, him who is able. And the word that Paul uses here for able is a root word from which we get our English word dynamite. To say that God is able is to speak of his power, of such power that is illimitable, of such power that is supernatural. It makes for an interesting study just to go through the New Testament, just to go through the Word of God for that matter, and to see how Scripture highlights for us the illimitable, unbounded ability or power of God. For instance, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, John tells his listeners, he says, God is able to raise up stones from these stones, children for Abraham. He's a God of the humanly impossible. He has the power to do anything but sin, but fail. Romans chapter 14, verse 4, the Lord is able to make his servant stand. Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound toward you so that you, having, uh, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 is able to do far more abundantly above all that we ask or think according to his power at work in us. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 18, Christ is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. Now, with regard to God's power, for which Jude tells us we ought to praise God, Jude calls attention, first of all, to his preserving power. Jude calls attention particularly to God's preserving power. We see that in the A part of verse 24, he says, There now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. The Bible abounds with references to the keeping, preserving power of God as it relates to our final salvation. We know that we are going to be kept right to the end, that we are not going to fall away from the faith. Why? Because God assures us in his word, those of us who are saved, that he is able to keep us from stumbling. First Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8, we see throughout the New Testament God's preserving power, his keeping power highlighted again and again. In 1 Corinthians 1 8, Paul writes in the Corinthian church, a church that was beset with spiritual immaturity, a church that was riddled with all kinds of scandalous issues. Paul assured them there, God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 23, Three assures us that God himself will sanctify us completely such that our whole spirit, soul, and body will be preserved blameless until the coming of the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
2 Thessalonians 3 verse 3 tells us, The Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Paul went through all kinds of trials. He went through all kinds of tribulations. Tribulations which would make the average professing Christian fall away from the faith. And there in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12, even as he suffered for the Lord, Paul was convinced that having entrusted himself to the Lord, Christ was able to keep him until that day. And of course, the apostle Peter assures us in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 5 how that we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this very epistle of Jude, if you go back to verse 1, note Jude began by noting in verse 1 that having been called and loved by God the Father, believers are kept for Jesus Christ. All this to say that by virtue of his preserving power, the all-powerful God of heaven, having saved us, will never lose a single one of us who is truly saved. How assuring, how comforting is this truth, beloved? The fact is, were it not for the keeping, preserving power of God, you and I would not be standing in the faith. You and I would not be continuing in the faith, let alone having the, have, have the prospect of standing before the glorious presence of God. Just think of the many hurdles, the many challenges that beset us day after day. The pressuring, alluring temptations that seek to distract us, that seek to derail us in our walk with the Lord. Talk about the trials, the stresses that tax our faith and our hope in the Lord. But praise be to God, sustained as we are by his power, sustained as we are by his keeping grace. He, as someone has well said, is able to keep us from falling out by the way, from falling in love with other gods, from falling into error, and from falling out of fellowship with himself. Now as regards the preserving, sustaining power of God to keep us, believers, from stumbling, we learned in verse 1 that we are kept for Jesus Christ. We are beloved in God, beloved in God, and kept for Jesus Christ. The verb kept, of course, is in the perfect tense, which suggests suggests this, that having been kept by God in the past, God continues to keep us in a protected, preserved condition. The specific verb that's used signifies to hold, preserve, or reserve someone or something unharmed or undisturbed. Paul uses a specific word there. It's a verb, tereo, which means it carries the idea of reserving or preserving someone or something unharmed or undisturbed. And the truth here, beloved, is that by his preserving power, God keeps us He preserves us from spiritual harm. That is why the word of God, Paul will ask a question in Romans chapter 8. He says, if God be for us, who can be against us? And then he lists a host of potential possibilities. He says, can height or depth 
or angels or principalities. And he, after enumerating all the various possibilities, he says, I'm convinced that none of these things shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Here's the point, my friends. You and I, if at all we are saved, the word of God tells us that we are kept by God's preserving power. In verse 24, the keeping, preserving power of God is depicted by a different verb, which connotes the activity of a, of, 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 of a watchman. It's the activity or office of a watchman. This word that is used in verse 24 in connection with God keeping us is the very word our Lord Jesus used in John chapter 17 verse 12 where he prayed to his father concerning those who have been given to him. I have guarded them and not one of them is lost. So his keeping power, by his keeping power, he keeps us unharmed. He keeps us in a state of safety. And by his keeping, preserving power, he guards us in such a way that we can never be lost. Somebody would say, how cool is that? I say, how wonderful is that? Now, what is significant here in verse 24 if you look at the text, Jude's statement, this is significant. It is Jude's statement that God is able to keep us from stumbling. Now, if you look at the King James Version or some other version, you'll notice it says, God is able, him who is able to keep you from falling. And there's a big difference. The question is, which is which? Which is it? More precisely, and the ESV has it right, because it's a specific verb he uses there, which is not falling, but stumbling. And the significance of this, beloved, is this, that even or ever before we get to the point of falling, God is able to keep us even, even from the stumble that would lead to a fall. That's truly impressive. Because what that says to us, it suggests how meticulously his power operates in connection with our preservation. God does not have to wait until we fall so that his ability, his power can kick into play when we fall. The Bible says he's able to keep us even from stumbling. What a great comfort this should be to us because here's the point. You and I are prone to not only stumbling but falling. Throughout scripture we find numerous examples, numerous examples to the effect that no one is so strong, no one is so secure as to be beyond the reach of falling and stumbling grievously. Let me say this, it matters not who you are. The best of us, the strongest and most mature of God's saints, given the right setting, given the right amount of pressure, given the right amount of temptation, will fall and stumble in the most miserable, grievous manner. 
Psalm 73, verses 2 and 3. Here's a godly man, the godly Asaph, the psalmist. You say godly people don't do that. Godly people can't be tempted that way. Well, listen to the, the psalmist Asaph. He says, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You know, read later in the psalm, Asaph even came to the point where he, he virtually said, listen, it's no use serving God. It's not worth it. Why? Because if I'm serving God like this, I'm serving God in such a dedicated manner, and look at the wicked, they're prospering, look at the wicked, they're getting ahead in life, then it's not worth it. Godly people, beloved, are prone to stumbling and falling. James chapter 3, verse 2, here's what the Apostle James says, we all stumble in many ways. We think of the case of Peter and his fellow disciples. Remember how that Jesus warned them, you will all fall away on account of me this very night. And you remember how insistent Peter was and all his disciples. In fact, Peter singled out himself. He says, Lord, even if all were to forsake you, I will never forsake you. And we know what happened. Yes, he fell. Who remembers David? Described in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 13, verse 22, as a man after God's own heart. You can't get more godly than that. A man after God's own heart. And remember, beloved, how this man, David, this man after God's own heart, the sweet singer of Israel, the one who sang the high praises of God, Remember how he grievously fell, fell into the sins of lust, adultery, murder, hypocrisy. And then what of Solomon? You remember Solomon's beginning, how that night when God appeared to him and said, Solomon, tell me what you want. Solomon said, listen, Lord, I am very young. I'm like a child. I don't know how to lead your people. Give me wisdom. And if I might use the expression, God was so impressed with him. God was so pleased with him. God said, Solomon, I'm not only, only going to give you wisdom, but I'm going to give you wealth. I'm going to give you all that people desire by way of wealth. He was a wealthy man. He was blessed by God. He was on the right track for God. But alas, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 8, after God had blessed him tremendously, the word of God tells us his heart was turned away from the Lord to idolatry by his many pagan wives. And of course, you know what eventually became? God became angry with him. God actually brought about the split in his kingdom in 931 BC, where thereafter there was the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Of course, praise God. And here's a principle. Let somebody say, well, that could happen to me, and then I'm lost. No, 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 no. Here's what happened. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon in his old age, evidently, wisened up 
he says, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And so on and so forth. But the point we're making here, my friend, is this. You and I are not so strong, not so mature as to be beyond the possibility of falling and failing and stumbling in the most grievous manner. That's why we need the keeping, preserving power of Almighty God. If you and I are to walk with the Lord, if we and I are to live for the Lord, the Lord must be our keeper and our preserver. Yes, as Jude warns us, we need to mount a defense against apostasy. We must do everything we can to remain in the faith. We are to keep ourselves in the love of God. We are to pray. We are to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. We are to separate ourselves from sin, from, from those who would lead us astray. But here's the point. Jude would have us understand that at the end of the day, our security lies not in our strength. Our security lies not in our holy, disciplined determination our security lies in the keeping, preserving power of God who is able to keep us from stumbling. Not only does Jude praise God for his preserving, sustaining power to keep us from stumbling, but secondly, Jude praises God for his perfecting power. His perfecting power. That is, that power by which he will bring to glorious completion the work, the saving, sanctifying work that he began in us. Look at the B part of verse 24. There in the B part of verse 24, Jude states that he is able, quote, to present you, here it comes, blameless before the presence of his glory. That is to say, he'll cause you to stand, literally, in the Greek it is, he will stand you. He will, in other words, he'll cause you to stand. That's the idea of presenting. The verb carries the idea of standing something. He's able to stand you before the presence of his glory. That is to say, he'll cause us to stand in his presence without any accusation or condemnation against us. I'm sure, my friends, as you look into your heart, as you look into your life, humanly speaking, you say, what if I were to stand before God now? Many of us would say, and rightly so, look, I'm filled with all kinds of blemishes. I'm filled. There's sin in my life. I still need to be where God would have me to be. Some would say I'm not ready. <laughs> question is, what exactly is meant by the presence of his glory? God is able to keep him from stumbling. Yes, that is his preserving power. But by his perfecting power, he's able to present you, to stand you blameless before the presence of his glory. What is this presence of his glory? The presence of his glory is what First Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, describes as that unapproachable light, that unapproachable light in which God dwells on account of which no one has ever seen or can see him. It is that glorious presence of God, a veiled form of which the prophet Isaiah saw 
Back in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 and following, where he said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And after Isaiah gives a description of what he saw as the veiled glory of God, and we say veil because Isaiah never saw the real, real thing. Because remember what First Timothy 6, verse 16 says, God dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen God or can see him. In fact, God himself says, no man can see me and live. He cannot see my glory and live. Remember, he had to put Moses in, in the cleft of a rock as he passed, he says, because you can't see my glory and live. It is this glorious presence of the holy God, the thrice holy God, which caused Isaiah to cry out when he saw a glimpse of that glory. Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am undone. I'm dead. We get some idea of this glorious presence of God from 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. 1 Kings 8, 10 and 11 tells how that when the priests came out to minister in the temple, they could not minister. Why? Because the glory of God filled the temple. Into this glorious presence of God, not even the high priest, privileged as he was to enter the Holy of Holies, symbolizing the holy presence of God. Not even the high priest could enter at will. He could not enter when he desired or he would be struck dead. And praise be to God, what Jude is suggesting here is that into this glorious presence, this very glorious presence of Almighty God, the holy, almighty God of heaven, you and I as believers in Jesus Christ will be able not only to enter someday, but to endure when God himself presents us before him. We know that because scripture tells us that they, the redeemed, will see his face. Revelation 22, verse 4. We will see his glory. In fact, Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, verse 24, among the things he prayed concerning his disciples, concerning us who believe on him, is that someday we would be able to see his glory. What a blessed hope we have of standing before the holy, awesome presence of God as Jude tells us God is able to present us there blameless we know that this will be so because the word of God teaches that we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is First John 3 verse 2 we are going to be blameless in actuality And the point is this, that if God is so powerful to have saved us, then how much more is he powerful? How much more does he have the ability to stand us in his presence free from all blame, free from all sin, free from all guilt? Free from all moral spirit, spiritual defilement. Again, in no way, my friends, not with all our self-made goodness, could you and I presume to stand before the holy God of heaven 
Even though saved by his grace, yes, even though saved by his grace, we need his continual perfecting, sanctifying power and grace to enable us to stand before him on that day. Now, here's the truth, and here's, here's the comforting truth. It is not something we're fighting desperately to attain. No, 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 no. Because in reality, in truth, beloved, the point is this, that right now, the way God sees us, he sees us in Christ, how? Blameless. We don't have to worry. So what I said before, if the question were to be asked, would you be ready to stand before him? You and I are conscious of our defilements, yes. You and I are conscious of our sins, yes. We know the proclivities of our hearts. We know the coldness. We know, my friends, how oftentimes we are not where we should be for God. But we also know from the word of God that how God reckons us right now, he looks at us not as we are in and of ourselves. He looks at us and in looking at us, he sees Christ. He sees Christ. That's our assurance. That's our hope. So when he looks at us on that final day, he will not so much... See us as we are in and of ourselves, but he will see Christ through us. Christ who is redeeming merits, all our sins, all our imperfections have been obliterated, indeed eradicated. I like how John MacArthur puts it. He says this quote, in his son, we are now blameless in the father's sight. When we are glorified, we will be blameless in his presence. We are right now blameless in his sight. Colossians chapter 1, 24, to, re- to present you blameless, ir- unreprovable in his sight. Here's the point. At our glorification, when God presents us before his glorious presence, we will be blameless in his presence. Now, in exalting the perfecting power of God with respect to believers in Christ, Jude makes the point, notice, that not only will God present them blameless before the presence of his glory, but how will he present them? He will present them with great joy. And this word joy in the Greek, this, this expression that we have in our English Bibles, great joy, is really one Greek word. And it is a word that speaks not just of joy in a casual, commonplace way. It is, it, it, it is what one lexicon describes as a piercing exclamation. It is what we would call uh, a jubilant exaltation. It is what we would call overwhelming, exuberant joy. What Peter describes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 as joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Now, here's the question. Whose joy will it be? Look at the text. Ask yourself as you read verse 24. He's able to present you faultless, blameless, before the throne of his glory with exceeding joy, with great joy. The question is, whose joy? You see, in looking at the text, the question becomes, is it that in being presented blameless, we will have great joy? Or will it be that in presenting us, God in presenting us blameless before his presence, 
God will have great joy. The question is, to which of these options is Jude referring? And I'll give you my take on it. Very simple. It seems we can't be sure which. Suffice it to say that in Scripture we find that not only the saints, not only believers in Christ, but God himself will have great joy on that final day when the saints are presented before him. Let's consider first of all the joy of the saints in the presence of God. You know, heaven, the place of God's presence, the place that God is said to reside in Isaiah chapter 66, is expressly described in Scripture as a place of profound joy. In addressing the Lord, the psalmist in Psalm 1611 says this, In your presence there is what? Fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Believers will be joyful in God's presence. Why? If you ask the question, why will believers be joyful in God's presence? It's very simple. It's suggested right there in Psalm 16 and 11. Believers in Christ will be joyful because, you see, in the very presence of God, it is the very presence of God that makes heaven the place of joy that it is. The saints will be filled with joy because there in the presence of God, they will know life in the fullest, truest sense of the word. There in the presence of God, we will know life as God meant it to be. We will know life, to, as somebody would say to the max, we'll know life to the fullest. What does that look like? John helps us to understand what that life looked look like in the book of Revelation because he says there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more hunger. He says, for the former things are passed away. And you know, my friends, even with all the superlatives, even with all the high adjectives, the high descriptives that we could use to, descri to describe the joys of heaven, we would not have begun to precisely say what the joy of heaven will be like. Listen, anything that you and I imagine the joy of heaven is going to be like, <laughs> that's worthless. If you say the joy of heaven is going to be no high gas prices, oh, come on. If, if the gas prices go down to a dollar tomorrow, the world would still be miserable. If you think of your best meal, the most delicious meal, and you say the joy of heaven will be this and that, it's worthless. The song that David played this morning, When Christ Shall Come. Here, one line goes like this. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation. All, listen, all the, all the songwriter could say is this. He never attempted to describe the joy that he will have. He says this. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. 
says the Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks. Here's what Thomas Brooks, the old Puritan preacher, said as he contemplated the joy of heaven. Thomas Brooks says this. He says, if all the earth were paper and all the plants of the earth were pens and all the sea were ink and if every man, woman and child had the pen of a ready writer, yet were they not able to express the thousandth part of those joys that saints shall have in heaven. End quote. The saints are going to have great joy. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be, the songwriter says. But listen, beloved, the great joy that will mark the occasion of the saints standing in the holy presence of God will not just be that of the saints. It will be the joy of the very God who will present us before his holy presence. The rejoicing of the Lord will stem from his presenting us to himself as trophies of his redeeming grace. In fact, you read Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10, and I always like to think of Ephesians 3 verse 10. Paul, after he talked about the prospect of our coming, the coming glories of our salvation. Paul says in Ephesians 3 verse 10 that God acted in grace. And I'm paraphrasing here. He says, to the intent, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10, that unto the principalities and powers might be known the manifold wisdom of God. And what I gather there is this, that God has lavished his grace on us. God, God has lavished his saving mercies on us that in the ages to come, he might what? put us on display as trophies of his wonderful redeeming grace. His will be the great joy of presenting his bride, the church, in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, Ephesians 5.27. His will be the great joy of presenting those whom he has saved as his completed workmanship as the end product of his humiliation and suffering. Such will be the joy of the Lord on that day when he presents us before his glorious presence. Indeed, it was in anticipation of this very joy that the writer of the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, he says, who for the joy that was set before him. What joy? The joy, the prospect of seeing those he saved stand before the holy presence of God, blameless, sinless, perfect, just as he is perfect. He says, for the joy, for that joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of God. And beloved, surely there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And you know, we often think of that verse when it says there's joy in heaven before the angels over one sinner that repents. We often assume that it's the angels who rejoice, but the Bible didn't say that. Of course, we know the angels would rejoice too. But the possibility is open that the, the, the text is making the point that God rejoices over the salvation of a sinner. Why? Because if you notice the parable that Jesus told, when the master found the sheep, when the householder found the, found the coin, what happened? They rejoiced. So by a similar token, God rejoices over a lost sinner. When that sinner 
comes the Christ and is saved. So the question is, if God can rejoice when sinners are saved, and we can just imagine the great exceeding joy of the Lord when he presents all redeemed sinners before his glorious presence. The question as we close this morning is this, sobering question. Will you, those of you who are not saved, will you be in that number of the redeemed who will know the joy, the joy of being in the presence of God? Will you be among those over whom the Lord will rejoice in that day? Will you be among those whom the Lord will rejoice in that day? And as we close, let me say this, that on the authority of the word of God, if you have not trusted Christ as your Savior, if you have not trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord, yours will not be an occasion of joy but what Hebrews chapter 10 verse 27 speaks of as follows. A fearful expectation of judgment and a fire of fury that will consume the adversaries. Oh, may God grant you his grace to embrace his son, Jesus, as your Lord and as your Savior. And here's the point. The good news this morning for those of us who are saved. We may be discouraged. Yes, doubting, fearful. Will I hold out, especially in these difficult times? Will I, in the end, be found true and loyal to the Lord? Let me say this. It's not our fighting for dear life. It is the God who, by his saving, preserving, protecting power, his perfecting power, it is that God who will present us blameless before his presence. He is the one who is keeping us. Ours is a responsibility to what? Trust him, to look to him, to look away from ourselves, to rest in him. May God grant that these things would be so for his name's sake. Amen.